0: Hello, and welcome to another very special episode of Let Me Explain You a Thing. My name is Andrew, and this is the podcast where I talk extemporaneously on a subject I know a decent amount about. And today, I will be recounting the epic, the decade-spanning glory, the tragedy, the artifice of The Brothers' War. Uh, this is a a novel that I'm gonna be explaining. I'm gonna give spoilers. So, spoilers alert for a book published in 1998. Also, quick sidebar. Off to a great start here, but quick sidebar. I really don't care for when people act sarcastic about, like, oh, spoilers alert for Frankenstein. Like, come on. Not everybody has read everything. Like just because something comes out like 30 years ago doesn't mean like like that that doesn't make any fucking sense. Like <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting heated. Um it doesn't make sense that uh like we don't consume every unit of culture that comes out every year like people miss things? Things come out before people are even alive? Like, don't act silly like, oh, you should have read this. It came out 11 years ago. Like, come on. Give spoiler alerts. I mean, you could be... Okay, I will say, you could be... You could be a little facetious about spoiler alerts as a concept. Um, I think our culture is a little hyper focused on plot relative to the other elements of a story such as character or themes or you know more broadly story story and plot are not synonymous anyway i think spoiler alerts kind of kind of fixate like i don't know i can know the beats of a story and that story might not be, like, totally ruined for me. It might still be really emotional or really shocking, you know, if you actually, like, go through and read it, if it's well, well-crafted, well right? Like, if it's a good story, you know, spoilers won't really damage the experience. The fact that spoilers could damage the experience suggests that maybe... The is not very good, and it relies on, like, surprising you in some very, like, visceral way. Anyway, um, I'm going to get off that hill. I don't know if I want to die there. So, anyway, we're going to move on and talk about The Brothers War. The Brothers War, if you're unfamiliar, and I know this is, like, my eighth magic podcast in a row, but The Brothers War is a story that was told through... Well, it's kind of a long and twisty history, but there was a magic set in, like, 1994 called Antiquities, and it was the story, ostensibly, of people digging up, like, in an archaeological sense, of people digging up relics of this ancient war between two powerful brothers named Urza and Mishra, um... And, you know, we just didn't have a lot of details about them. This was before Magic Story was really, like, like, Magic Cannon was really, uh, maintained. Um, before there was much oversight to Magic Canon, And, you know, it was just kind of, like, for vibes, for flavor, like, There's these, you know, war machines being dug up that represent these two sides in a war between brothers. Like, there's drama in that. It's mysterious, right? Um, Anyway, flash forward to 1998. In just a few years, uh, a few short years, Urza becomes a major character, like a major protagonist and uh, principal character in the ongoing drama of... Magic Story, and at this point they start publishing uh, novels that are, you know, tie-ins to the the expansions that they release, tie-ins to the new card set, but, um, you know, Magic Story is is much more closely managed, right, you could say. Um, So anyway, the brothers were is a novel. This is this is what I am going to be recounting the story of this novel, um, and why now? Because uh, it's kind of back in the Magic Zeitgeist. The most recent expansion that released this month in November of 2022 uh, is the Brothers War, and it because this story had never been given life by a Magic set they decided that, you know, and because it's like a very, like again, like there's great drama in this story uh, they decided to build a magic set around this concept and to kind of like you know, kind of pledge a connection to the present day of magic story. They, they have a character travel back in time and kind of like witness key events and so forth. I actually haven't gotten done reading all of the the story that was released new with this set—it's um, neat. It's it's interesting. It's very well written, and it picks up after the events of the Brothers War, which is kind of you know more more sort of on a, a you know a meta narrative level. It's placing the storyline kind of after and within and like at different points within the story. I, I don't know. It's very cool what they're doing with that. I like it. But anyway, I'm going to tell you the story of the, the original story of the Brothers War. This is based on the novel The Brothers War by Jeff Grubb, published in 1998, once again. So, uh, at the outset, we have a, an archaeological dig site that is out in the Falaji Desert. Um, this is on a continent known as Terrasir, And, uh, the dig site is managed by an archaeologist named Tocasia. And Tocasia is an Argivian. All the the politics and, and groups in this will come to matter more. But in the meantime, uh, she's an Argivian. She manages this dig site that is kind of her passion project, but is also, like, a convenient way for the nobles of Argive to, you know, sort of get rid of their kids for a summer, like send them off to, you know, learn something, live a little rough, come home with some interesting stories, and you know, like get get some character, you know. Um, so, two such young men uh, sent out into the desert this way are Urza and Mishra, their sons of. I think uh sort of like a lesser noble, um, he's kind of ailing uh, you know, his wife or Zanishra's uh mother died some point uh prior to the start of the story. Um and he's remarried and you know, so like you, you kinda get the impression that home life is not like you know, bombastically amazing. Um, anyway, so Urza and Mishra are hyper-competitive, they're super precocious, they're really bright young boys, um, and part of their you know, rivalry derives from the fact that Urza was born on the first day of the, the Dominarian year, and Mishra was born on the last day. And so you know, Mishra notes at one point that on his birthday, the last day of the year, he and Urza are the same age. I mean, obviously, Urza is still a year minus a day older than him, um, but you know, he, they can claim the same the same numerical age. Um, so they're they're very competitive. They have a great like sibling rivalry. Uh, on the Dick site, Urza becomes very studious, very scholarly. One of the... So the whole concept, because archaeology was not really established in our world until like the 18th century or so, kind of around the time of uh, the the European Enlightenment and like, you know, Western industrialization and so forth, like you kind of need the, the infrastructure to... Like dig stuff up, and the intellectual reason to pursue that in the first place um, is kind of the the you know short, uh, quick and dirty explanation of that of archaeology as a as a pursuit. So, um, in this world. You know, which exists in like a very you know kind of medieval fantasy level of level of technology and social development. Um, the Takasia's dig site is uh, what what Takasia is searching for is relics of the Thran Empire. The Thran were a people who. You know, their their empire diminished and died off sometime thousands of years, in actuality about 5,000 years prior to Urza and Mishra's birth. Um, And Takasha digs up interesting, uh, you know, devices and constructs and power stones, most interestingly. Power stones are small gems that are capable of powering artifacts, powering devices, and artifacts in this sense is not, like, a, not, not used interchangeably with, like, Relic, but it it is, like, a construct, a robot, a device, you know, it's just the kind of more, like, fantasy-tinged, uh, way of saying that, um, and one who works with artifacts is called an Artificer, uh, that's how I pronounce it, I've heard people say Artificer, whatever. Anyway, so Takeja is, this is her passion, finding these Thran relics, trying to reconstruct the history of the Thran Empire. And, uh, she and Urza and Mishra and another of her students, Lauren, um, and, and other students, uh, at the dig site kind of, you know, debate, uh, in the evenings, like what, what the Thran were like, what did they pursue, you know, what, what were they all about? Why did they die out? All the big questions of history like that. Um, okay, so the other dynamic going on is that the, most of the labor employed on the, uh, on the dig site is from uh, members of the Falaji tribes. The Falaji are uh, uh, inhabitants of the desert. Um, They have kind of a you know, sort of a patriarchal um, system kind of like a a broad confederacy of many different uh, tribes ruled by Kadir. Name of their um, leaders or rulers. And some of these tribes are, you know, hostile raiders against the kingdoms of Argive and Corliss and, uh, and Yosha, which are the main, like, principal polities on Teresier. Um Other Falaji tribes are more cooperative, and so those who work on the Dick site are more of the latter. Um, so that's just an important thing to understand. Anyway, at some point, uh, Urza and Mishra, and oh, another another note on the dynamic: Urza becomes very studious, loves researching the Thran, spends a lot long, long hours, like in his tent with books. Um, Mishra, on the other hand, is very gregarious, makes friends with uh, the Falaji, starts learning their language and customs, and. Uh, Mishra really throws himself into uh, working on <coughs> excuse me uh, working on the dig site uh, really gets a knack for understanding like where things might be buried, how deep, what needs to be done to unearth them uh, and things like that so, an interesting little divergence, point of divergence between the brothers. Okay, so, there's a Mishra. At one point they discover uh, a Thran flying device that they call an Ornithopter. Um, It has a damaged power stone uh, that enables it to take flight. Um, But to it, so they, they kind of call on all their, their uh, smarts and collaborate with the other students and Takasia and Lauren, and they fix up the ornithopter and take it for a successful first, first voyage. Uh, well in the air, Mishra discovers uh, markings in the sand around them that can only really be seen and appreciated from far above thinking of, of, like, the Nazca lines in Peru um, and various earthen works like that. So uh, Urza and Mishra and Takeja go out in an ornithopter to explore these, these markings, and they kind of argue back and forth about what they could symbolize, like, is it, is it artwork, is it something else? And they determine that it's kind of a giant compass, they follow these points to a cavern where they crash land because they're pursued by a rock, a, a giant eagle um, who thinks, you know, I don't know if it's like trying to mate with them or whatever because they're in a giant flying device, but <laughs> um, or you know, hunted out of the out of its skies. But they they have to make an emergency landing, and they discover this cavern. They kind of go digging into it. They find uh, this giant power stone that actually splits into two when Urza and Mishra make contact with it. Um, Urza and Mishra each end up with a half, and they determine from all of the sort of skeletal remains of, of artifact constructs around them that Mishra's stone weakens and... Uh, sort of like stagnates the the artifact creatures around them. Well, whereas Urza's is capable of empowering them and controlling them, and so they they call them the Urza's. Urza's is called the Might Stone, and Mishra's is known as the Weak Stone. That's a name that Urza gives to it, because obviously it sounds like it's bad, like it's the less good one. But really they just have different functions, they just, you know, they work differently. So anyway, um, they take these stones home, um, after escaping from these, like, Thran relics that sputter to life in the caves of Koilos. Koilos is also a name that they give the caves, which means secret. Um, what is not said, but what I just happen to know from other magic lore is that the caves of Koilos are where Yagmoth, who is a Thran physician at the the dawning or the not dawning the dying days of the Thran Empire, uh, Yagmoth found a by splitting a perfect power stone created a portal to the plain of Phyrexia in these very caves, and, uh, the Thran capital city of Halcyon was actually built, you know, above this site, or very near this site, or, you know, not built after, you know, near this site, but, like, these caves that Mishra went went into, that was by the existing city of, of Halcyon, or not Mishra, uh, Yagmoth. Um, anyway, not, not a ton else, um, that I want to say about, uh, Yagmoth and the Thran at this point, because it's not part of our, our story of the brothers, really, or at least not yet. Um, anyway, so they, they end up bickering back at, at their tent um over the power stones. They uh, they the, the stones make contact with one another and it results in an explosion that kills Takasia. Um and Takasia was like a parental figure to the brothers. Uh she was their mentor, their intellectual uh you know, their intellectual guide uh, through this this part of their adolescence and into their teen years, um, because they go back like several years. You know, this is not all just one summer. This is multiple years um, of their lives, and Takeshi was a big part of that. Um, whereas their, you know, parents really weren't. Um, so Takeja is killed in the blast, uh, Urza being the cool and, uh, emotionless young man that he is, hardens himself and just kind of moves on, leaves the dig site, uh, finds work in the capital city of, uh, of Yosha, which is called Krug. Um, Urza becomes apprentice to a master clockmaker named Rusko, uh, who, you know, finds Urza to be a little, a little stiff, um, just as, you know, by the same token, um, The oceans are a land with where everything is is artfully crafted. Um, there are many gods. People like revel in uh, in the the pleasures of life, and Argive is kind of viewed as sort of like a dower kingdom with with few gods than anybody really. Still, cleaves to. Um, it's just kind of a kind of a, a serious, stern country, by contrast to Yosha. And so Roscoe, you know, really plays on this dynamic and he encourages Urza to live a little at every opportunity. Um, Urza is just very dedicated to his work, to developing his skills with artifacts. Um, eventually, uh, as one of their little, Risco's little attempts to, to get Urza to have some fun and enjoy life, he takes Urza to this, uh, major, you know, kind of, uh, celebration, um, civic event, where the warlord of Yosha is trying to get his, his daughter married off to the most... Uh, puissant (laughs) funny word Uh, and strapping warrior in all of the country He so his daughter Kayla bin Krug um, Kayla had been betrothed to someone else for dynastic reasons some like prince or noble of another country uh, who died before they were able to be married so kind of at at you know sixes and sevens the warlord is like All right, well, I'll just, hey, if anybody can move this jade statue in this, you know, town square here, I'm going to marry Kayla off to him. Um, And, of course, the first time they go through this, uh, you know, nobody's able to. People, like, pull their, their groins and stuff like that, trying to haul this enormous statue of heavy jade um, and lift it off the ground. And, you know, Urza sees this with some amusement. Um He sees also that as part of the dowry um, that the warlord promises the victor, uh, a tome bearing Thran glyphs, And so Urza basically decides that he's going to get married because he wants to read a book. Um, so he... And Rusko set to work and over the next month they're working on uh some month or two they're working on uh a clockwork man um that they have uh you know Urza comes back and Kayla you know kind of has been losing interest in these proceedings at first she's you know it's exciting the idea that she could be married to some like beefy guy that can lift a giant statue like, everyone fails, and the warlord way overshot the mark with this challenge. And the other thing is, he he set this challenge because he wanted proof that there were still warriors in in Yosha. He made his bread, you know, fighting people, taking lands and shit, and they you know, at this point they're living in a extended period of peace where, you know, his generals are retiring to spend time with their grandchildren. And that rankles this this warlike man. So, you know, and Kayla is is kind of resigned to it. She's like, ah, I was going to be married to some asshole anyway. <laughs> um, and is kind of losing interest in the challenge as well. And so... You know, Urza shows up with this clockwork man, the, the guy lifts the statue and, and, and moves it, and he's like, hey, I moved the statue, <laughs> you didn't see, say it had to be personally me, but I did, by my will, move this statue. Um, and the warlord is pissed, because obviously he's, like, not doing it right, um, and he got caught in a loophole, basically. Um, but after some smoothing over by Risco, and, you know, he meets Urza. And Kayla, I, I should have mentioned, Kayla had already met Urza and was kind of charmed by him, um, in spite of herself, uh, one time when visiting the uh, Risco's uh, clock workshop. Clockwork shop or clock workshop? Maybe the latter. Um, anyway, so, so, uh, Kayla and Urza are married, and, you know, in all the pomp and circumstance and, uh, you know, ceremony of a Yoshin wedding, um, you know, he, he does seem to care for her, at least initially, you know, I mean, really always, like, he he cares for her. He just gets really wrapped up in his work. Um, and really, of course, you know, the whole thing was motivated by the tome. And uh, you know what? He uh, The night of their wedding, they fuck, they hang out. And then she falls asleep and he's like, I'm going to go check out that book. So he gets to studying. Um, I'm going to cut back over to Mishra, see what's going on with that feller. So Mishra... Uh, unlike Urza, who just kind of stoically, you know, accepts the loss of Takezha, Mishra flips out and runs out into the desert. Um, he is, you know, picked up pretty promptly by another band of Falaji. Um, this one is hostile to uh, non-Falaji. So, you know, bad news for Mishra. He's basically captured as a as a slave... Um, and the Kadir uh, of this group of Falaji, uh, this, is, this group is the Suwardi, which is going to come into play later. Uh, the Suwarti Kadir um, determines that Mishra has some, some metal to him, some intellectual merit. And so he says, hey, I'll tell you what, you know, you know sums and figures and you're clearly a clever guy. I'm going to have you... And you know your your Falaji. That's impressive for an outsider. Um, You know your customs. You know how to speak to a Kadir. Uh, So the guy decides that he's going to have Mishra tutor his son um, in Argivian. Um, And other things, too. You know, math and natural sciences and whatnot. So... Mishra over time builds up a good relationship with the Kadir's son and the whole purpose of this and you know obviously he wants his freedom. he wants more power within you know this society that he finds himself. Uh, but by the same token he also wants his weak stone back because the weak stone was was taken by the Kadir um, and he's trying to get close to it again. Um, the weak stone, of course, by using that, I think he has some control over people as well as artifacts. Like, he can weaken and sicken people as well. So that's, you know, how he thinks he can make a break for it. Um, anyway, they kind of cotton on to his, his plan here. Excuse me. His plan. And so, uh... However, before they're able to really take action on this and punish him or whatever, I mean, they they have been kind of treating him harshly the whole time. His situation gets a little bit better over time. He becomes more trusted by the kadir's son and the kadir the kadir himself as well. Um, but yeah, he things are things are kind of rough for a while. But he Mishra um, before. Th- the Kadir is able to take action on on this, you know, naked ploy for the the, the weak stone. Um, a makfawa, as the Falaji call it, um, an ancient dragon engine roar, comes roaring up through the sand um, and kills the Kadir. Uh, Mishra, using his meek stone, not meek stone, his weak stone, <laughs> Uh, Meekstone is actually another card in magic, though, believe it or not. But Mishra uses his Weakstone to dominate the Mokfawa and control it, um, which is cool. So then, uh, you know, the Falaji sustain some losses, but Mishra attracts people to him by commanding this Mokfawa, and he becomes, like, basically the vizier of the, you know, the right-hand man. Of the new Kadir, who is the old Kadir's son, who he had already developed a rapport with. Okay, so now um, Urza and Mishra meet back up again, and at this point, neither had really known what became of the other one. Um, but they they both attend because at this point, Urza is Prince Consort of Krug, and Mishra is. Um, I forget the term they use, but he's the right-hand man of the Qadir of the Suardi. So, uh, the warlord of, of Yosha um, assembles some other nations to kind of discuss the Falaji raids that are increasing in, uh, in frequency um, along their borders. Uh, he brings together the nations of... Argive, which, as you remember, is where Urza and Mishra are originally from. Uh, he brings together Argive, Yosha, and Corliss. Corliss is a merchant state. It's kind of weaker. Like, people expect that it'll sort of do whatever, you know, Yosha and Argive want. Um, they also invite the Falaji, but don't really expect them to show up. However, they do. They show up with... Oh, I guess I should also say um, Urza, after becoming, you know, Prince Consort, studying the Tome, starts putting Ornithopters into production. Um, And the Ornithopters... Yeah, I need to jump back a little bit. Uh, So these are these flying devices that they, you know, he and Mishra had, you know, once found. And, like, he remembers enough of the construction of that device and, like, has learned enough about other ones that... And they have some power stones, so they're able to like put together some ornithopters. Urza also takes on as an apprentice a young man named Thanos, who develops his cleverness as a toy maker uh, with his designs based on uh, based on animals, based on you know the natural world. Um. So Urza. The warlord, of course, wants to take Urza's uh, ornithopters and weaponize them. He wants to take. They have, they have some awareness of like what they call a, the goblin bang stuff, um, which is like this goblin-produced substance. It's gunpowder, right? It's gunpowder, uh, but it's of course very volatile. It's it's been difficult for them to weaponize up until this point, but. They determine that they can use the ornithopters to drop bombs with this bang stuff. Um, the the warlord really leads the charge on that. Um, anyway, so they all they take some thopters up to this uh, peace talk at Corlinda, which is I think uh, a city of Corliss. Um, and Urza is shocked to find Mishra. Uh, well, they're already there. They don't expect the Falaji to show up at all. But then Urza is shocked to see the, um, uh, the Falaji roll up with Mishra and this giant dragon engine, the Mak'fawa, in tow. Um, they exchange some words. Uh, kind of unclear where they are with one another. Um, but they've both yoked themselves to these sort of opposing political forces, and Mishra has become much more ingratiated into the Falaji way of life. Um, oh, I should also backtrack to say, at this point, Mishra has also taken on a chief apprentice. Uh, and she is a woman named Ashnod. She is not Falaji either. I think she's from... I don't actually know... Um, but Ashnod is kind of an exemplar among the Falaji because women don't usually rise to positions of authority or advisement, um, and she is also an artificer. She is fascinated with the secrets of the human body, the, the machine, the mechanism of the human body, um, in a pretty morbid way. Um, Mishra and Ashnod have kind of like a little thing going on at first. Um, we'll talk more about that situation later. But anyway, so... uh Erz and Mishra exchange some words. The peace talks themselves, though, go badly. Uh, the, the root of the matter is that Falaji are raiding... Uh, along these other the coasts of these other kingdoms, the borders of these other kingdoms, because they want their land back that the warlord took. There's no question that he did this. This was traditional Sawardi lands, uh, known as the Sawardi marches. Although the warlord and the Oceans refer to them refer to this land as the Sword Marches, which is kind of a fun little bit of wordplay. Kinda of makes you think like are they called sword? in, you know, in-world, or, you know, sort of raises more questions than it answers, but it's fun. Um, so anyway, the, you know, the, so where do you want this land back and they'll stop raiding, but the warlord's like, obviously, he's, you know, created this imperium. He's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, so tensions kind of escalate the young Kadir, and the warlord. Uh, the swardi are at the point of leaving, and the warlord commands a bombing run be done on them by the, the yoshin uh, Ornithopters. Oops. <laughs> uh, the swardi naturally, like, freak out. Um, they get into a fight. The... Uh... Young Kadir personally stabs and kills the warlord, um, so he's gone. And then the the young Kadir is killed as well in the ensuing chaos. I believe this is when he dies. Um, you know, so Urza's really fucked up about it because it was peace talk. He was kind of hopeful that they could pull something together, um, and he was kind of hopeful for rekindling this rekindling sounds bad, but restarting this relationship with his brother. Okay, so, um, and it looks like I'm going to have to, wow, almost 40 minutes. I'm, I'm going to go to time on this for sure, uh, and probably start a part two tomorrow. Um, but yeah, so, you know, the... The warlord and the kadir are both killed. Um, Urza has to take uh, his wife's, you know, father's body back to her, um, and tell her, you know, what happened and what went wrong here. Um, and at that time, Kayla becomes queen of Krug, uh, queen of Yosha in her own right. Um, there's also the traditional title of war lady that she would have right to, but is not really interested in. Um, okay. So Urza like sets to work. They, so like at this point, you know, Urza and Kayla have kind of a, a stormy marriage. Like obviously he married her for a book Uh, to gain access to a book. Um, Urza, like, Urza is inattentive. He gets very wrapped up in his work, his production of Ornithopters and other artifacts. Um, his work at the Orni area of Krug. So, you know, um, it's awkward because his apprentice, Thanos, is, has more social skills than Urza and is kind of aware that Kayla is, like, frustrated and suffering in this relationship. Um, but Urza doesn't really have the, the time or attention for that. Um, anyway, so... Time goes on, and you know Mishra kind of rises to command the loyalty of the other kadir of the Falaji. He sort of becomes the de facto ruler of the Falaji. Um, this all kind of happens off screen. Um, Urza and Mishra uh, reconvene their their people for another. Oh no, I think the kadir maybe not may not be dead yet at this time, I think he's maybe close, I don't know, um, at this point, Mishra is kind of the power behind the throne, yeah, that's the situation, okay, so, Urza and Mishra, uh, meet up for this peace talk, um, you know, things are, things are not, you know, spectacular between them since the last, their last meeting, um Mishra really lays it on the thick with Kayla. Uh Ashnod and uh Thanos kind of struck up strike up a, a friendship of sorts. Um you know, Thanos is like he's he's smart, but he's kind of dumb. Um and Ashnod is like too clever by half. Um so Ashnod. Uh, Ashnod um, you know, and and Taunos get to talking, they become pretty close um, over the course of these days of feasting and, uh, you know, political discourse Um, they become sort of close they have stuff in, a lot in common being that they're sort of the the, you know, trusted henchmen of two brilliant, genius, somewhat mad, uh, artificers in Urza and Mishra, um, who themselves are so very similar. Um, so Thanos and Ashnod, uh, you know, Thanos also, you know, decides to sort of figure out what he can about Mishra and about you know, what's going on among the Falaji, um, he learns that Nishra actually has unearthed more dragon engines, there's, you know, he's got more stuff going on in that, that department, um, and, um, You know, Thanos maybe unwittingly reveals some things about Urza to Ashnod as well. Um, his motives, his, you know, the way his workshop functions. But they gain each other's trust, and they kind of broker somewhat of a peace. Ashnod, uh, wins sort of a tour of... Yeah, I don't know if this all happens on the same night, but they... They tour Urza's Ornieri, and, you know, Mishra learns a little bit about what his brother is doing with Artifacts, um, and some of the leaps that he's made in Artifice. Um. Okay, so then shit really blows up, though. Like, the peace talks seem to be going alright. You know, neither brother is really able to get concessions out of the other, but... You know, they're all, they're all, like, managing, okay? At Krug. Uh, hanging out, feasting, whatever. And then all of a sudden... I got some hiccups all of a sudden. That's what happened all of a sudden. Um, but then all of a sudden, uh... Thanos, uh... You know prior to this, this diplomatic meeting, like, uh, Urza really wanted to give up the sword marches in exchange for buying off the Falaji, um, Kayla really didn't want to break up her father's kingdom to do that, um, Mishra decided, Mishra made the, uh, meanwhile, Mishra made the uh, offer that he would call off his his guys, they would cease their raids, they would give up their claim to the sorority marches if Urza handed over his, uh, his Might Stone, and Mishra could get the Might Stone and the Weak Stone. Obviously, Urza was not, not in on that idea. Um, and they fight bitterly over this. Like, Kayla's like, come on, just give him the fucking rock. Um, and Urza is just like you know, they're both coming at it from different angles. They cannot agree. Um, so they've been fighting bitterly, and Mishra has really been, like, cozying up to Kayla. Anyway, guess what happens? Uh, Thanos, Ashnod, and Urza all catch, uh, Mishra and Kayla in bed together. Um, that pretty much, uh, ends any of their negotiations. <laughs> uh, And I want to say at this point, um, Mishra and Ashnod and the Falaji and their party all leave the capital. They leave Krug. They head back to their own people. Um, Urza is furious, of course. Kayla is just like, just, you know, obviously this is a very political thing that she's done as queen. But it's, it's also like she was kind of trying to cozy up, sort of trying to honeypot Mishra a little bit. Um, and just, it's all fucked, and none of it worked right. Um, anyway, so, that, I think, is where I'm, (laughs) that happy note. I'm going to end this recording, and we will be back next time. Hopefully, I can, I can cover all of this in two parts. I think I can do it. Um, but anyway, I am at my destination. That's a little talk on the Brothers War, and a little, uh... Um, uninvited, uh, opinions on, uh, spoilers and, and whatnot, and some background on the Brothers War as well, but anyway, I am at my destination, uh, and we're at time, so, uh, thanks everybody for listening, and we will see you next time, Bye bye